This morning we, as it were, take a brief break from our series through the Gospel of Luke, which we trust to pick up, Lord willing, next week. And we turn our attention to the book of Acts and chapter 22. We do so as to help us, as in the Lord's mercies and great kindness, we have a baptism this morning. So it's good for us to be sure that we see the divine meaning and the warrant for such an ordinance and sacrament that we ourselves be well edified and built up by the same. And so to help focus our attention, uh, notice we'll read from verse 12 and onwards, Acts 22 from verse 12 and through verse 16. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there, came unto me and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. In the same hour I looked up upon him, and he said, The God of our fathers hath chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will, and see that just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And now why tarriest thou? Arise, and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And so on. Here Paul is recounting his entrance upon not only uh, the ministry, but upon the new covenant. It's not that he's testifying of his entrance into the covenant of grace, but rather his entrance into the new administration of it, the new covenant. And likewise, the salvation that he himself has come to experience by God's grace. And so you'll notice in the particular verse, verse 16, that here there's this call, why tarriest thou? Why do you wait? Why do you delay? He says, arise, be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now we remember, of course, that he is an adult. He's an instructed man. He's one who understands certain things. He had in his body the mark of circumcision, and here he comes now as the transition from old to new covenant takes place. He comes to embrace the new covenant and thus the sign of the same. Now notice what takes place. There is this expression that's stated, be baptized and wash away thy sins. It's actually fairly instructive for us when we're asking the questions, you know, what is baptism? What does baptism mean? Sometimes we hear people say, well, it doesn't really matter what we think of it because, you know, we're supposed to do it. It's a duty, and therefore, let's just be sure that we're doing it. But brethren, think if we thought of that way about anything that God gave us. Well, we don't really understand God's Word. We know we're supposed to read it, so let's just read it. We don't really understand God's praise, so we know we're supposed to sing the Psalms. Let's just sing them. We don't really know what we're doing in prayer, but we're supposed to pray, so let's just pray. Brethren, we would become, in effect, superstitious. We would become, by consequence, 
not only unintelligent in the things of God, but we would actually be resisting the way of God. For God teaches us that we may understand. He would have us engage in his worship and all of the ordinances thereof with increased degrees of understanding. Because by these means, he instructs us. It's true. He gives us grace. And there is a mystery in the relationship between the ordinances, whether the reading of the Bible, the preaching of his word, the prayers of the saints, or the administration of the sacraments. There is an undeniable mystery how God employs them. But there's also an undeniable relationship between the fact that his means are used to enlighten us to instruct us, to help us. And so here we see some help regarding the ordinance and sacrament of baptism. And it is founded on the Lord's salvation. This expression that's so precious to us at the end of verse 16, I imagine that we understand well, if it were without what precedes, Wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. We would say, I get it. We call upon the name of the Lord, and He cleanses us from our sins. And we're right about that. He does. As we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we call upon His name, it is He who then cleanses us from our sin. Our pollution, our guilt, our depravity, our iniquity, He answers for it by washing But notice, it doesn't just say that. It's be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling upon the name of the Lord. There's something there being instructed of baptism. Now, we'll see that this doesn't mean that any and all who are baptized have by that baptism their sins washed from them. But it does give us insight into the great help that baptism is. The great message that baptism declares, that it is intimately linked to the biblical notion of cleansing, which is nothing of a new covenant idea. It is as old as the covenant of grace in its earliest mention. There is the need for cleansing under the old and new covenants, the one covenant of grace. What we see here is the new covenant expanding, the new covenant going to all nations, the new covenant going forth, and those who are in it are to receive the sign of the new covenant. And you see that with Saul, who is to become Paul. We see this extending to the nations as those outside are brought in and receive the sign of baptism together with their children. And all of this is to remind us that the Lord would have His people in covenant know both their need for cleansing and the provision of cleansing. Now, brethren, there are things in our lives that if we thought hard and long enough about, just by the simple fact, we would gain some encouragement. But there's also a benefit in having something that testifies of that truth. So, for instance, many will wear wedding rings, and it's a reminder unto them that they stand in a special relationship, that they have taken upon themselves vows. The ring isn't 
the wedding. The ring isn't the vow, but the ring is a sign of the vow. And so it is in the Lord's ordaining of His signs. Baptism isn't salvation, but baptism is a testimony, a sign, and as we'll see, a seal of the same. You'll notice that baptism particularly holds forth the notion of washing. It is the application of water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, Matthew 28. You're familiar with this. Christ says, All power in heaven and earth is given unto me. And he then exhorts, commands his disciples, Go unto all nations, doing what? You know, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And we have brethren, of course, who mistakenly argue from certain words of Paul in the book of Romans to say, you know, baptism only means immersion. Well, in fact, the word baptism means cleansing. You can see that here, be baptized and wash away thy sins. You see it when Christ is reproving the Pharisees and unbelieving Jews when he says, listen, you wash cups and couches. Do you know what the word that's translated there for wash is? It's baptized. You baptize these things. He's not saying you dip them down in water. He's saying you ceremonially cleanse them unto a use devoted to God. And you can see as well in the book of Hebrews, when we read there of diverse washings under the Old Covenant, which word is diverse baptisms under the Old Covenant. So there were sacrifices that were first to be washed. The priests were first to be washed. Never were they dipped in something, but water was, as it were, poured out and sprinkled upon them. The biblical, the whole picture of the Bible with reference to this notion is one of washing. And thus, the word regarding baptism. Be baptized and wash away thy sins. Now, we wish to look at this this morning regarding Christian baptism as it holds forth the washing away of our sins, and particularly unto fellowship of God. For why are they cleansed? Well, that we may call upon the name of the Lord. Noah's fellowship in Matthew 28, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. There is an entrance into fellowship. We're being cleansed unto something. We're not just being cleansed in order to be clean. We're being cleansed in order to enjoy the fellowship of the Holy God. Think of this. The priests ceremonially were washed so that they would enter upon the ministry of the priesthood. And here what's being said is, we who are unclean in our sins are being washed that we may enter upon the fellowship of the triune and glorious God. Well, consider then three things this morning. Firstly, the need for washing. Secondly, the way of washing. And thirdly, the sign and seal of washing. These three things to help us both in the worship of God as well as in our own lives as those who have been baptized. Well, firstly, then, the need for washing. Children understand this instantly. If they're asked, you know, why do people wash themselves? 
Well, they might say things like, because their mom and dad tell them. You say, okay, that's fair, but why do their parents tell them? And the answer is, clearly, well, there's filth, there's dirt, there needs to be cleansing. Now, this is true in baptism, not by outward defilement to our bodies, but of the wickedness of our sins, the moral filth. You saw this actually in Ezekiel 36, when it speaks of the filth of Israel likened to the uncleanness of a woman separated from the people. This is speaking of that monthly occurrence, of course, and blood which defiles, and she would be set aside in that uh, time of her uh, life. And it's interesting that in Isaiah we read that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And this perhaps scandalizes us, but the Hebrew is actually very precise. It's like the rags that a set-apart woman uses to cleanse herself. That's the weight of our sin. It's polluted. It's foul. It's unclean. It's rank. It's something defiled. This is the picture. Think of what Isaiah says of our righteousnesses. We read elsewhere in the scriptures that God is of such holiness. Think of this expression that he charges his angels with folly. Not the fallen angels, by the way but even those who have not lost their first estate. What's the point? That they've sinned? No. But such is the overwhelming truth of His holiness that even they don't compare in truth to the perfection of holiness He possesses. Well, friends, if that's true of angels who have not lost their first estate, how much truer it is of you and I who have sin is uncleanness. Sin is pollutedness. Sin is moral filth. It's excrement cast upon our soul. But more than that, it's not cast upon our soul. It is our soul. Our soul is filth. Our soul is uncleanness. Since Adam, it's not as if something has been super added to us. It's that we are corrupt. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. We are defiled. It's not just something that is, as it were, contracted, that is alien to us. It is indeed what we are in Adam. We are sinners in sin. Psalm 51, did my mother conceive me? I was brought forth in iniquity. It strikes us from the very moment of conception. It's not that we sit there innocent and then we learn the ways of the world and become defiled. It's that defilement cleaves to us, is woven into us as it were. It's inseparable from us as sinners. Such is the reality of our wickedness. God regularly reproves His people because of their sin. And he testifies that it is such that, as he says, can a leopard change his spots? Can't be done. It's the very reality of what we are. Now, all of this can be said and carefully said and clearly said, and yet all of it will be, as it were, a water that is washed away 
and is remembered no more, taken by the gutters out and away from our presence, except the Lord makes us aware of our defilement. There is a world of difference between our minds acknowledging, yet men are sinners, and being convinced, I am defiled. I am the sinner. You see this at different times along the way. We've mentioned already Isaiah 6, when Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, and it's not just that he recites a definitional statement, but he actually senses the utter purity of God, the utter holiness of God, and his own uncleanness. Woe is me. I am undone. Why, Isaiah? I am a man, hear the language, of unclean lips. My speech is defiled. Well, we read throughout the Bible, Proverbs, the book of James as well, Christ himself says it, that it's out of the heart that all sin proceeds. So when we have sinful speech, it's testifying of a heart that is unclean, a heart that is plagued. We hear others speak of the sinfulness of sin and the evil of evils, as the Puritans would often write. And yet we can read all of those things, and until we see that this is true of ourselves outside of Christ and outside of His grace, we in truth will never see the need for washing. Isn't this true? We have to sort of help our children to discern why they need to wash their hands. Why do I need to do it? You know, and they don't realize they're covered with all sorts of grime. And they're ready to just take up food and start eating it. They are wiping their nose and everything else, and they have no hesitation to reach out and to grab. And we say, no, 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 go wash your hands and come back. And then as they grow, they start to learn, oh, it's not just socially proper, there's actually a reason for cleansing our hands. There's filth that it ought not to go into our bodies. There's germs that can spread to others and do these kinds of things. And so they start to realize as they learn, this needs to be taken away. What's true physically and materially is likewise true spiritually of our souls. And what happens is the Lord makes us to see our sin. Paul relates something of this in Romans chapter 7 when he says, I was alive apart from the law once. That is, of course, he never knew a day when he wasn't instructed in the law of God. But what he means is, when the commandment came, he says, sin revived and I died. He doesn't mean that all of a sudden he saw the commandment, he became a sinner. It's that the commandment which promised life became death to him, not because of any problem with the law, but because for the first time, it seems, Paul saw that the purity, the exacting righteousness of God's law, not only was not fulfilled by him, but could not be fulfilled by him. So he says, I died. The air, as it were, was taken from me. There are times in the lives of men and women when tragedy strikes them and they can't breathe. They stand there gasping. Nothing has physically hit them. It's not as if someone has punched them in the stomach physically. But such is the terror, the tragedy of what's taken place that they find themselves not breathing. It's almost like a death. We'll be coming to the anniversary of September 11th in a few days. And 
hopelessly you'll see different things that remind you of those planes that crashed into the Twin Towers. And you can hear eyewitness accounts of seeing it take place. And if you were alive and mindful of that time, doubtlessly you stood at the television and you sat there, as we say, dumbfounded. You couldn't speak. What is happening? What's going on? You think of the signs of what took place at that time. The planes crash in and the jet fuel erupts and men on upper stories counted liberty to fling themselves out of the building, hurled down multiple stories to their death, and people on the streets are seeing this happen. They stand there, as it were, dead, looking at these things taking place, unable to deal with with life. Well, the same is true spiritually. When, as it were, God brings His commandment with force to us, nothing changes about us. But what changes is our perception of what we are. Here we are thinking, you know, it's not that bad. Sin's not that big of a deal. So-and-so. A little Sabbath breaking isn't that big of a deal because, you know, so many other professing Christians are breaking the Sabbath. A little lie here or there, a little playing with deceit and deception, not a big deal. It's not like I'm taking a sworn oath on which I deceive others. You know, a little hatred is justifiable because they're not doing what I want. A little bit of coveting is justifiable because I don't have what others have. Brothers and sisters, friends, when God's commandment comes with power... All of that stops. And we stand, as it were, dead. We realize the whole of our life has been a facade. It's been the gilding of that which has attempted to cover up the rottenness of what we are as sinners by nature. Sin revives. Notice Paul doesn't say sin came to be. It's sin comes in force. It overtakes my sense, my knowledge, my understanding. He doesn't say, look, others, I see it in them. He's consumed with his own sin. And he realizes he has no hope. He realized he was one who was guilty and polluted before the Lord God of heaven and earth. There are terrors in this life some of which we certainly hope never to experience. You mentioned some, September 11th. What a horror and what a difficulty it will be for families, children now who are older men who lost their mother or father in those attacks. There are things that men see on the battlefield. There are things that children see in the privacy of their own homes as a father beats his wife. There are horrors that people experience in the church as the abuse of pastors against little children. There are things that happen in this world that are cruel and wicked, and some doubtlessly to some extent in this room have experienced such things. But there is no greater terror, no greater misery than to appear before God conscious that you stand as one who has sinned against Him. There's no greater misery, there's no worse thing that could ever befall you than to find on the last day that you stand before the holy God filthy in your sins. Brethren, it is a mercy when God comes to us with power and says, in this life, you are depraved. 
You are guilty. And it's not a little thing here that just needs a little bit of fix. It's not that you run to Barnes and Noble or get online and find out, you know, how do I correct this, that, or the other habit. It's not, you know, what's the best rules that I can do and observe to make sure that I'm improving in something little by little every day. Christ comes to us by His Word and says, you are comprehensively profane. There's nothing you can do to make it better. There's nothing you can do to cleanse yourself. It's as if the fabric of your being is so stained with the deepest dye that can never be washed by your washing that you have no hope in yourselves. But brethren, what do people do? They get a sense of their need for washing and then they turn to their own actions. Well, I'm aware of this. I'm going to scrub it off. Children sometimes... As they're young, they get markers and they start drawing on things. They draw on the wall. They draw on furniture. They draw on themselves. And if it is that they're doing so with some marker that is washable, it's not a big deal, right? A little wet tissue can take off most of it. But if it is that they get some deep and dark permanent marker and start to scribble on it, well, now it's a bigger issue. But we know this, that even permanent markers washed away in this life. Our skin will eventually cause the permanence of the marker no longer to be seen. Here's the reality regarding the filth of sin. There is no Fuller's soap. There is no laundry detergent. There is no turpentine or any other agency in this life that can cleanse our souls by our own doing. The only way of cleansing is by the Almighty, the Omnipotent, the grace of God Himself. And so if we become convinced, whether young or old, I stand defiled before God, take note. First off, that must be acknowledged. But second off, hear this well. There's nothing that you can do by your actions that will even begin to wash yourself from your sin. There's nothing that you can do. You know, so drunkards, they say, "Uh uh-oh, my family's ruined. I've lost my job. I need to stop. They go to AA. They go to something else. They stop drinking. And their life gets into order. Do you realize that when we say merely, how do you know I'm a Christian? Well, I used to be a drunkard. Now I'm not a drunkard. Well, perhaps that's some consequence of it. But brethren, there are Hindus. There are Muslims. There are atheists who are drunkards and are no longer drunkards. People can do those outward things. People can change the outward appearance. But what you don't have is one apart from the grace of God who changes the very essence of what he is from a rebel against God to one who loves God. From one who is condemned by God to one now who is declared righteous by God. From one who is an enemy of God to one now who is the friend of God. That comes only by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that as we move now to consider the way of washing. We can think of the filth as implied already with reference to its guilt and with reference to its pollution or its depravity. We think of guilt, we're talking of the legal consequence. Just as one steals a car, they stand guilty of a crime. 
And if caught, of course, they have certain payment to make, whether that's through time or service or some combination of things as well. But all of us know that a man may do his time in prison and come out from prison unchanged. How many people have we heard, well, here's their record. When they were 14 years old, they stole a television. When they were 17 years old, they stole a car. When they were 19 years old, they got involved in a bank heist. You know, their whole life, though they're putting in the time and they're paying off the crime, what hasn't happened is a change of heart. There's been no real change. Now, God be praised, there are some of the worst criminals in this world who are truly converted in their time of prison. But we know what it is for men to be guilty, to pay for their crime, to do their time, to, as it were, no longer be answerable to the crime because justice has been served, only to get back into this world and see that there's no change that really has taken place. Well, this helps us understand that it's not just our guilt that needs to be washed. It's also the foulness, the festering reality of our hearts. As Christ says, you know, from whence cometh lies and adulteries and murders and thefts? He says, it doesn't come from what a man puts in his body. Because whatever a man eats or drinks, what does it do? Well, it passes through his stomach, it goes in the draft, it passes out of him, and he's unchanged by it. But rather, these things come from within, from the heart. The heart is the problem. And so, yes, the guilt must be answered, but also the profanity, the heart must be changed. And here's where we have great encouragement. How is it that a sinner may be washed? Well, notice that our passage says, be baptized, wash away thy sins. Notice the intimacy of Link here. Wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. The washing comes as one is calling upon the name of the Lord, of which, as we'll see, baptism is a sign. Notice how the Scriptures help us see this more clearly. Is one guilty, having violated God's law? What are they to do? What is their hope of cleansing, whether to call upon the name of the Lord, why? Well, notice in Revelation 1 and verse 5, it speaks of Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. His blood answers our guilt. His blood comes to us as we stand guilty, and it washes, it cleanses us from the guilt of our sins. And so, we read in Isaiah that the Lord shall wash us and cleanse us from such iniquity. And we see how He does that with reference to guilt. Here we stand guilty as transgressors of the law. What does Christ do? He makes payment for it, and He suffers the condemnation in our stead, and thus cleanses us, such as Paul says, that He takes the writing of ordinances that was against us and He leaves it nailed to His cross. Paul says that He was made a curse for us. Though He knew no sin, was He made a curse for us. To what end? That we might be made the righteousness of God 
in him. And so if you and I are to have our crime, have our guilt dealt with, it is only as we call upon the name of the Lord, even the Lord Jesus Christ, whose work on our behalf answers our guilt. It's Christ, his death, his resurrection. No time to open the whole scriptures on this, but you see it sufficiently in such a passage. But notice that the washing is full, that we are to wash away our sins as we call on the name of the Lord. And we have hope because not only is our guilt answered by the Lord Jesus Christ, but also our corruption, our spiritual death, is likewise cleansed by the Spirit of Christ. So here we were talking about how there is such a stain upon our souls that nothing of human doing can even begin to wash it away. You and I can do enough to put on decent clothes, right? We see men and women in all of their immodesty and they can cover their shame. We see men and women with foul mouths and they can start around certain people to speak more acceptably. And then they slip and what do they say? They say something foolish. Oh, pardon my French. But in reality... What's happening is their heart is breaking through the false fabric of their false righteousness. But God be praised, He doesn't only deal with our guilt. He also deals with our corruption. He washes it from us. Notice in Titus chapter 3, we read this earlier in there at verse 5. Titus 3 and verse 5. There we read, Titus 3 and verse 5. The kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. It's an amazing statement if we were to deal with this more in depth. The washing is so radical. The washing is so comprehensive that it is here called a regeneration. It's a new birth. Of course, this brings us immediately back to John chapter 3, when Christ says to Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see, and later he cannot enter in to the kingdom of heaven. But notice this passage. The washing of the Holy Ghost is not just, as it were, some little change. It is an absolute change of the inmost being of the man. He is reborn. It's a washing that not only cleanses, it's a washing that changes. It transforms the thing. And so, whereas we were dead, such washing gives life and renews us. I notice the link, verse 6, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Why are we to call upon the name of the Lord? Because all of the blessings are bound up in Him. New life, grace, and so on. And though it is true that regeneration precedes the activity of faith, yet it is also true that when faith is given by God's grace and we see and enter into the kingdom of heaven, we're ever calling upon Him that He would further renew us according to His gracious purpose. So we see a couple of things. The cleansing of our guilt the washing of our indwelling corruption and sin, 
Notice as well that the washing is not, as it were, an end in itself, but it is unto an end. Now, ultimately, you know this from the beginning, that the ultimate end for which God does anything is the glory of his own great name. But you can see as well that this consists in the fellowship of God himself. When Christ commissions baptism, Matthew 28 He says, Go ye therefore, verse 19, and teach all nations, disciple them, make disciples of them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. This is not just, as it were, the authorization of baptism by the triune God. It is the statement of baptism into the name of. So that God is, as it were, placing His name saying, This one is mine. This one belongs to me. This one, whatever else they are by nature, they're now mine. And so baptism, as we'll see, is the outward sign of that which is held forth by God's covenant. You can see this as well as we read in Ezekiel chapter 36. Promise of the new covenant, which is held before us. Notice what's stated, verse 25 of that chapter. Then will I, God, sprinkle water upon you, and ye shall be clean. Now, by the way, we don't have time to go into this, but it's interesting, when the Spirit is poured out upon God's people at Pentecost, the language is being borrowed from Ezekiel and elsewhere. This idea of it coming from above, being poured out. So the greatest picture of baptism, as it holds forth a sign of the Spirit's work and the application of the Lord Jesus Christ is the application of water from above, the pouring out. Here God will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness, from all your idols will I cleanse you. Then notice, a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes that that ye shall keep my judgments and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and ye shall be my people and I will be your God. You see, all of this is as it were preparing for the possession of the people unto God. I'm doing this that I may dwell with you. That I may be in you. That as you were without me, now am I coming near to you. And so the washing is unto fellowship. But not just with God, though that is the supreme and greatest, with God's people as well. Notice how Paul indicates this in 1 Corinthians and chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and at verse 13. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been made all to drink into one Spirit. We're baptized into one body. There's no longer a Jewish church. There's a universal church. The word Catholic ought not to scare us, except it be twisted by the word Roman, or by that way, any other word. Because the word Catholic is universal. The universal church of the Lord Jesus Christ of every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people, every class. So you see these 
silly at best and wicked things at worst. You know, this is a white church. This is a black church. This is a cowboy church. This is a young church. This is an old church. All of these kinds of distinctions have no founding in the Scriptures. Because by Christ, we're brought together unto God, and as unto God through Christ, we're brought together with one another. So John beautifully expresses this when he says in the opening of his epistle, the first epistle, and he says, listen, I'm writing these things to you, that ye may have fellowship with us. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He says, and our fellowship is with God and with His Son, Jesus Christ. There's no such thing as an individualistic Christian. Christians are a corporate people. Christians are people who don't choose their own people. In having God, God's people are their people. This is the foundation for our loving deference to one another. This is the foundation for our prizing of one another. This is the foundation for our, at times, loving putting up with one another. We count one another as greater than ourselves, and the foundation of it all is because not only I, we might say, but we have been washed. We share in the life of Christ. We have God dwelling in us. And so I might see someone with a different skin color. I might see someone of a different gender. I might see someone of a different class. I might see someone who drives a different style of car. Uh, They live in a more remote or they live in the inner city. It doesn't matter what I see in those outward things. But fundamentally as a Christian, what I see is someone who is my brother or sister who has been washed by the same blood, who is inhabited by the same Spirit, and whatever their cultural differences may be, what we have by the washing of grace through Christ Jesus and by the Holy Spirit makes us to enjoy life everlasting now and indeed forever. Well, finally, the sign and seal of washing. The text says, we've been building to this point, be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now, it's important for us to see that whereas this text in isolation could be saying, you know, everyone who is baptized is washed from their sins, it's important to see more fully the idea of Scripture itself regarding signs. Signs are nothing new. In the Scriptures, God has ever used signs. Children, you know this, right? You look up uh, on a rainy day, and you see, as the sun is striking through the clouds, a rainbow, right? And what do you say? You don't say, Ah, God is, as it were, staying the flood. The flood is now descending. No. You say, there's a sign of what God did, and of His promise of what He shall do. Right? It's a sign. And so when God makes covenant with Noah, and with all creation even, He gives this sign saying, I will no longer destroy the earth. Brethren, when God establishes that covenant of grace with Abraham, He gives likewise a sign. And He gives it, by the way, not only to Abraham, but He gives it to all within His household. He gives it to Ishmael. He also gives it to all who are under His authority. 
And when Isaac, his son of promise, is born, he gives it to Isaac. And all the descendants within this narrowed covenant are to receive the sign of that covenant. And someone says, well, what is that sign? What is actually being signified? Because there's some today that say things like, well, the sign signifies the political covenant. We have no hesitation in saying there's something political, but brethren, it's not with Abraham. There's the economy of politics that we start to see formed in Moses' day, but not only politics, not only the governance of society. There's grace held forth in Moses. Moses is a meek man, a man of faith, a man of hope, a man that's pardoned, a man that testifies of Christ. All of these things are true, particularly What takes place as a sign to Abraham is actually told us explicitly in the Bible. What is it? We can see it in Romans chapter 4 and verse 11. It says, He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised. That is, he had faith not yet being circumcised. That he might be the father of all them that believe though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. Now understand this. Not what a Presbyterian or a Reformed person is saying. Just the words of Scripture. Circumcision is a sign of righteousness of faith. Now that same sign is applied to every male that comes from Abraham. Now we can see a few things. The sign doesn't mean the person has righteousness. For Ishmael is circumcised. Esau will be circumcised. Judas Iscariot was circumcised. Saul of Tarsus was circumcised. And he was unconverted for a season. Saul the king was circumcised. And he died an apostate. Circumcision itself is not the thing. But as Paul says, it's a sign pointing to the thing. And we may wonder why circumcision? Well, there's reason for that. We're told, of course, in the Old Testament that whereas the sign of circumcision addresses the foreskin of the male's flesh, that all Israel is to circumcise the foreskin of their hearts, that are removed the unclean part from them. And so the point is, we may not fully understand the sign at times, though it's not hard finally to determine what it is, But it is to indicate that the sign is not the same as the thing. It's pointing to the thing. If you have a wedding ring, you don't put your ring on the table and say, that's my marriage. You might point to the ring and say, there's a sign that I'm married. You might say, oh, thank God that I'm married, as it reminds you of it. You might be convicted, oh, I've not kept my vows as I ought to. But the ring is not your marriage. You might have a wedding or a marriage certificate. You don't come and point at your certificate and say, that's my marriage. You say, this testifies of my marriage. If you have a birth certificate, you don't point it and say, there's my birth. You say, this tells me of when I was born. So on. You have all these different things that signify things. Well, it's true in God's covenant. The sign points to something. And here, circumcision pointed to righteousness of faith. Now, someone says, yep, I see that about circumcision. 
but it's a big leap to go from circumcision to baptism. Well, it's not so big as a leap as people think. In fact, it's a joining together that God makes himself. Notice in the book of Colossians and chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Here we have it stated in such wondrous, amazing simplicity. Verse 10, speaking of Christ, you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. Notice how Paul puts these two back to back. That they're both holding forth the benefits of union with Christ. They have the same message. Do you see that? Circumcision is pointing to our union with Christ. Well, that's no longer the sign. We see that so clearly. We need not labor that point. But what is it that baptism testifies of? That we are risen with Christ. It testifies of our union with Christ. Remember washing? We're washed unto fellowship with the triune God. And particularly with the person of the Son of God, we have all of the benefits, as it were, held forth to us. So baptism is a sign pointing to the benefit of washing and union with Christ, that as He has died, so we have died to sin. As He has risen, so we're risen in newness of life. Notice that baptism is not here being spoken of with reference to its mode. You know, you hear this idea, well, you know, we're dead in Christ, buried with Him, so we're buried down. And then we're raised up, so we're lifted up. That's not it. We're baptized... And thus we're with Him. We're buried with Him in baptism or by virtue of baptism. The idea of baptism is a sign of our being united to Christ. Here we stand in our feet washed. Now we're in Christ. We're brought into Him so that He's ours and all that He's done is for us. That's the sign. It's pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord, as our Savior. And what it does then is it has a call. The sign and seal calls those who bear the sign and seal to embrace the promise held forth to them. God comes and says, I will be your God. And it's as if, as you and I often do, we feel in ourselves, it's not strong enough. How do I make this more clearly understood? How can I persuade this person of what I'm saying? And God says, I will be your God. You will be my people. And to help you, Here's a sign. Here's what I give to you to see my promise is genuine. Now we know that men pledge their love only to take back their love. But brethren, remember as it's recorded in the book of Hebrews, it is impossible for God to lie. So when He pledges His love, when He pledges His salvation, when He says, I will be your God, call upon Me. Call upon Me and be washed of your sins. Call upon Me and be saved. Call upon Me and enjoy My fellowship. And He supplies us this pledge and says, here it is. See the outward sign? Now call upon Me and be washed from your sins. What a blessing. What an extreme blessing that God has been pleased not to leave us merely, though it's a blessing itself, to the bare teaching of His Word 
but He comes to us and as it were, touches us with the sign of baptism and says, unto you I make this promise. Unto you I speak peace. The call though is as is said, wash thy sins, calling upon the name of the Lord. What it reminds us is this. If we've been baptized, we have need to then call upon the Lord who has claimed us. We have need to come unto Him and say, Lord, what You've promised, fulfill. I stand in need of not just the outward sign and seal. I stand in need of the spiritual reality. Let the blood of Christ cleanse me from all sin. Let the Spirit of God wash me thoroughly. This is David's plea, isn't it? It's not that the promises of the new covenant are altogether different than those of the old. It's that they're clearer. They're held forth with greater simplicity and purity. But what is it that David says in Psalm 51? He says, cleanse me from my unrighteousness. Cleanse me from my sin. And the privilege, among many others, of the new covenant is that the Lord's sign includes an explicit testimony of cleansing. Brethren, as we close then, see God's great mercy in committing to us not only the word of His covenant, but the sign and seal of His covenant. That as you and I have heard the preaching of the gospel on various occasions, likewise do we have what's more, we have the sign of His covenant that has been given to us personally. And so we are called then to take hold of His covenant. I will be your God. Ye shall be My people. We come and we say, Lord, with Your promise and the sign and pledge of that promise, I come and say, Be My God. Have Me as Yours. Wash Me of My sins. Renew My soul that I may walk in fellowship with You. Oh, brethren, let us be much in pleading His promises, pleading His covenant, that when we have sinned and we stand, as it were, dismayed at our rebellion, we remember His promise and His sign and we come near to God confidently saying, I've sinned, but oh God, cleanse me of my sin. When it is we feel our soul, as it were, droopy and dreary and declining, we come and we say, oh God, look where I am spiritually but your spirit renews. Oh, you've promised to renew. You've given a sign that you would do so. Renew me, because faithful you are to all of your promises. Well, the Lord bless that each of us would know not only the sign and seal, but the reality of the washing away of all of our sins, guilt and corruption. Would you stand with me for prayer?